Are you ready for another round? Welcome back to Round Rant, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Graeme Lennon, who was the creator of Father Ted, and other TV shows such as The IT Crowd, Black Books, and Big Train. Graeme also recently has published his own book called Tough Crowd, How I Made and Lost a Career in Comedy, which talks about his life story to date. So, Graeme, thanks a million for coming on, and how is all with you today? Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, things are going pretty well at the moment, actually, for the first time in a long time. Uh, been getting some nice reviews for the book, and it's selling pretty well. So, uh, yeah, found me in a good, good, stuff. good place. Good to hear. And, yeah, before we maybe get into the book and some of your life work, I always like to ask people, and it's probably more relevant now, especially with the last week we've experienced as Irish people, that, like, about people's childhoods and how how the world was presented to you at an early age, but say yourself when you were taking your first steps and realizing what world was surrounding you, like what was Ireland like growing up when you were a young boy? God, well, you know, I mean, it was pre-internet obviously. So uh, it was, it was doing things like getting into abandoned (laughs) cement mixers and being turned upside down. Uh, getting uh, uh, pallets and trying to make a boat on giant uh, uh, pools of water. That uh, looking, you know, climbing up to the top of uh, uh, the scaffolding of churches that were being built. I mean, it's astonishing that any of us yeah. made it out alive. You know, but uh, but yeah, it was it was and it was slightly stultifying. Um, I found an escape in 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 literature and movies and music, uh, all of which I kind of grasped onto as quickly as I could because it was the only thing that was alleviating the boredom for me. The boredom was made up of, you know, school and learning things I didn't really understand. Well, I, well, I had to know them. Um, you, you know, it was, uh, it was uh, and also, you know, just kind of getting bullied a lot escaping into books and, and movies and music through because of that too. Um, and then later on using comedy uh, as a way of, I don't know, I made a sort of a name for myself in school when I started doing debates because I would just turn them into stand-up comedy routines. Um, I'm ashamed to say I, I, I did uh, plagiarize a lot of those <laughs> debates from Woody Allen. Um, people were kind of confused as to why I was suddenly calling people <laughs> schmucks, you know, and it was uh, because of that. But um, but yeah, I kind of I kind of uh, made it through then to adulthood, and again there was like another, I'd say, about ten years before the internet came along, and uh, that was spent um, writing music journalism and uh, uh, finally persuading Arthur Matthews to come over who was the guy I wrote Father Ted with, um, and and just trying our hand at comedy, yeah. you know. We'd already done a little bit of it in Dublin, uh, written a few sketches for ourselves to perform. And um, we just thought, well, why not, you know? We, we, like, we knew we had a good sense of humor. Um, 
so we we decided to uh, to try it out on on the Brits. Yeah, you know, and it's a good audience to to test yourself out. And you mentioned Ar- Arthur there, who obviously you collaborated a huge amount with, and like even with Father Ted and whatnot. And what was it? Well over a year ago, I had Bill Oakley on, who was one of the famed writers of The Simpsons, and he had a, a collaborator as well who he felt that like if he didn't have him by his side, he probably wouldn't have gotten into writing. It was great to have someone to bounce ideas off. But in his words, you know, take, well, not his exact words, but take the piss out of. And you kind of had built up that chemistry. And with yourself, having, say, Arthur at that early stage of the writing process and bouncing ideas off, like – how would you describe yourself as a duo? Was it a bit of yin and yang? Were you completely polar opposites? Were you the same type of person? Like how, how did it evolve at the early uh, stages? Yeah, it was, uh, yin and yang is a good way of putting it. Uh, I, I, in fact, I heard a writer, uh, a writing teacher, uh, what he do, he divides uh, uh, writers into left brain and right brain writers. Left brain writers are very creative, I think. Uh, uh, but they don't have much patience for things like structure and setups and payoffs and all that sort of thing. Uh, right brain, right brain uh, writers, and it might be yeah. the other way around. I can't remember which is which. But right brain writers, I believe, are are much more. Um, uh, they they do appreciate structure and they do kind of um, uh, plot things out and make sure everything makes sense. Um, Arthur was definitely the former. He he, he his ideas were explosively surreal and uh, and hilarious but sometimes they might run on for a few pages without actually making uh, without actually having mm. an ending or or connecting to the story so i just quickly realized that like i could take some of the stuff he was doing and i just steered a car a little bit towards things that made sense in the context of the story you know um and just his, and also I was always like a, a, a magpie in my influences. And just hanging around with Arthur, you picked up the language, you picked up the way, his particular sense of humor. Um, and uh, it was it was just such a rich sense of humor um, that it kind of powered us through all the sketches we wrote for Big Train and, and, and all that sort of thing. I mean, we wrote hundreds of sketches for Big Train, only only a, a percentage of which yeah. ended up on screen. And Father Ted, too, we, we could just write and write and write. And, um, yeah, it was just a great collaboration because, you know, I might sit down and write something, uh, then Arthur would see it and apply his imagination to it, and then I would see it and... and uh, you know, apply mine again and try and figure out: Does it fit in the story? Are we writing a story, or are we going off off the point? Um, and uh, yeah, we just had two roles that that work kind of great with each other. You know, um, uh, yeah, de- definitely without a doubt the best collaboration I've ever had. And and I would uh, I would suggest that anyone who is getting in co- into comedy really does keep keep your eye out for people like that. You know, people who are, people who have, as I said in the book, a touch of the divine yeah. about them, you know, like they've been just graced by uh, a sense of humor that is almost unworldly because no one else was making jokes like Arthur. No one else was saying things the way he was saying them. 
uh, or had precisely his um, uh, eye for the surreal. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful yin and yang collaboration yeah, for sure. You and know. you mentioned some of the the earlier works you had, like Big Train, and it seemed like, and obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the Fast Show was probably perhaps the first maybe big TV show that, that kind of showcased your your pure writing or kind of creative talents and well smith and jones before that but but yeah the fast show was more our style i guess you know smith and jones was more mm. conventional yeah probably. but it was but it was very useful to us in that it was where we learned how to construct a sketch and how to write something with a, a beginning middle and mm. end you know um and no no yeah. no sorry thank you for that and what I, I was leading to there was that I know you've got one or two origin stories of how Father's Head came together, but like, was there specific life experiences or maybe even influences that really forced you or inspired you to create Father's Head in the first place? No, I mean, the only life experience I could point to would be watching Arthur do the character mm. on stage. Like Arthur used to do him as a stand-up, and uh, he had a way of delivering the character that was just extremely funny. You know, it was certain kind of voice you don't hear in comedy clubs. You know, it's very innocent, uh, unworldly. Um, the jokes he would tell would be semi-accidental. Like, there's a very good example of a type of joke Arthur would tell uh, that ended up in the series. But I don't know if you remember the one where um, Claire Grogan came around playing a sort of version of Sinead yeah. O'Connor, a very a very woke uh, pop star. And uh, Ted sees the cover of a magazine and he says, and uh, where she's, <laughs> the headline is Clint Howard. Yeah, I do remember that. And Ted says, maybe she's talking about, I used to know a father, Clint Power. Well, maybe she's having a go at him. He literally doesn't even know what the word means. <laughs> that was the kind of thing we absolutely loved with Arthur, with Ted, you know, uh, where he would kind of stumble into jokes without realizing almost that they were funny. The classic one we always, you know, I would always quote to people because such a perfect live joke to say in a live setting is he'd look out at the crowd and he'd say, if anyone at the back can't see, say hello to them. They're from St. Kevin's School for the Blind. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like... Uh, he, and he had the voice in the head, in his head, because he had two uncles who were priests. And so when you ask about the real-life experience, the, the real-life experience probably came from Arthur, you know, because he would he would meet these, uh, the, the, you know, he, he, he loved his uncles and, and was uh, would meet them every so often and, and just come back with stories about them. And they would be similar kind of unworldly stories. Like the one I tell in the book is uh, he... Uh, he was there once. This was a time when cassettes were still yeah. available. And he said uh, he was there once, and one of the priests said to the other, put on the strokes <laughs> tape. And Arthur was like, what? They're listening to the strokes, yeah. you know, who were big at the time. And uh, they put on the tape, and it was a voice going, when you have a stroke, <laughs> lie down on your side. <laughs> Or, yeah. or you know, if you if you're with if you're with someone who is who's had a stroke, lie them down on their side. It was a it was a tape about how to deal with people who'd had a stroke. So it was stuff like that, you know, just endlessly funny. And um when you spoke to Arthur, you would quickly get kind of caught up in this world 
you know, and 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 it, it it fired your imagination, you know. Like we would, it's where things like the idea of priest socks being an extra dark color of black that yeah. isn't available anywhere else, you know. Th- this nonsense kind of came easily to us, you know, simply because of. Yeah, you know, it's a, a, a view, an absurd view of the world that I think I I did have and I shared, but I learned a lot more of it from Arthur. You know, I picked up a lot more of it from yeah. Arthur. And I think he said it in the book where I think the term was paddy whack. No, paddy whacking. Uh, yeah, whackery. Excuse me. Paddy whack. And yeah. you've gone, yeah. you've gone on record extensively and said you didn't like about. Father Ted, you didn't want to take the complete piss out of the Irish, but you were you were always confident enough that it was always going to be funny enough and it would work out in the end. But from the like the construction of the show, you had so many options with Father Ted, so many avenues to go down, so many like kind of key narratives to pursue and like the the thing that often gets overlooked and I've, I've rewatched a lot of the episodes over the last several weeks to kind of just remind myself of some of the, some of the content and gags, but like the priests doing their like day to day lives is kind of one of the subsets of what people would expect. And what I mean by that is like you focus on the day to day lives of them rather than them doing, you know, the, the society, kind of outlook as to what priests would do, which is like saying mass and doing funerals and doing sure. bits and bobs. And whenever you showcase that, you think I'd like the clip of Dougal's funeral. <laughs> it's obviously one of the, the better ones, but even like Ted yeah. doing the 10 second mass when the nuns arrive, it it's nearly <laughs> like yes. a an idea, not necessarily to dismiss the church or practical side of being a priest, but like, was it always your intention to make it nearly unnoticeable within the TV show or, like, in most cases, like a bit of a farce? Like, you've got Bishop Brennan throwing, throwing away his superiors when you realize he's got kicked up the arse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like, we, we were told a couple of things when we were writing it. One, one of the things we were told was avoid making fun of uh, 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 central tenets of belief. Uh, in like, for instance, the virgin birth, you know, um, they said, avoid that, you'll be okay. And the other, and the other, uh, and the thing is, we, it didn't, it didn't really come up for us a lot, that type of thing, because as you say, we weren't really talking about them in their, um, in their working hours. Uh, Arthur, in fact, made it a rule. He said, we, we never see them at work. That was his key thing. We never see them at work. And I kind of didn't understand it at first. And then later on, he, he, I heard him in an interview saying, you know, there were all these other ecclesiastical sitcoms. Leave it to Mrs. O'Brien was an mm-hmm. Irish one. There was another one called uh, All Gas and Gators. Um, and these sitcoms all showed them at work doing christenings, you know, confessions, all that sort of thing. And the thing about that is that it, um, uh, if we had done the same, we might have ended up looking just like one of those sitcoms. So for us, it was all about the downtime. We found it very funny, the idea that, like, and this is not true. Priests, I'm sure, I have very full days. But we, we, we pretended that any time they weren't doing a mass or a confession, they were just playing Luda <laughs> and stuff like this, you know, and that just kind of amused us because it was like, 
you know, one of the other things about Ted, it's kind of slightly connected, these kind of brainless activities they would be involved with, but it's slightly connected to um, the idea that if you were to think too much about God and the implications of things like the virgin birth and heaven and hell and all that stuff, you would mm. go mad, you know, because it's frightening. Some of it is really disturbing. Some of the implications, you know, I don't know if you've ever read um, Flannery O'Connor's short stories, but all her stories are about a kind of holy terror that um, that come about because, you know, the, 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 they happen in the story because of her belief in, in the Catholic Church. Um, she goes very down, very far down that road of kind of, as I say, mm. holy terror. Um, and so Ted and Dougal just spend their days trying to push away all thoughts of of the spiritual yeah. because they're a little they're a little frightened by them, you know and Ted's Ted's you know obviously Ted's um, interests are much more kind of venal and earthbound um, and it just made sense for him not to have or to be embarrassed by religion that's one thing Arthur would say Arthur said you know whenever he, he, priests he knew whenever the subject got onto religion they get very mm. embarrassed and try and change change the subject you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so so all these things just kind of together, they gave us a framework to approach the show that meant we'd never go down the road of, I don't know, showing uh, uh, Ted doing a, a, a drunken yeah. christening or something, drop, dropping the baby or something. You know, it was all it was all other stuff. And uh, yeah, it worked out. It was a good it was a good rule yeah, for us. No, you know? for sure. And it, it's a good point you made there about. Even some of my friends who maybe could be pro athletes or maybe in the entertainment business, when they meet, say, strangers or at an event, the last thing they want to hear is about their profession. Like they actually come up to me and they're like, oh, it's actually great yeah. because we didn't talk about me and what I do. So it's probably a fair yes. point. And definitely, as you said, it did work yeah. in your favor. And with the the four main characters of Jack, Dougal, Ted and Mrs. Doyle, I've always wondered because it just works so well. And like most great comedies, it just works. It's like the Simpsons, the family just simply works. But like, was there ever a, a fifth character or was it always going to maybe be four males or three males? Or was it just set in stone from the beginning that it was going to be the alcoholic, the yeah. idiot, the guy who ran away with money and uh, very caring, but often overlooked uh, housekeeper yeah 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 it 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 solidified into that group very quickly they they all came from uh a parody or documentary mock documentary we wrote called irish lives which had ted visiting all the old priests he used to know in the seminary and uh it was really like a bunch of sketches tied together because we were writing a lot of sketches at the time we didn't really know how to write a sitcom yet so we wrote this um irish lives thing you know, I mean, which starts off with Ted looking at the camera talking as he's driving along and he immediately gets into a crash, you know, it was stuff like that. And, uh, and, and he met one priest who was dead and he didn't realize it and just talks to him for ages until people come in and say, oh, he's dead. Now that when we, when we took the, when we started writing it as a sitcom, we took that scene and made that character, Father Jack, it became the sixth episode where Ted, where yeah. Jack dies. Um, 
and uh, so then, so then we wrote this. We wrote so we wrote the sixth episode first, handed it in. And we only handed in half of it. We were still kind of finding it hard to believe they wanted a sitcom from us. And they wrote back and they said, this is really good, but, you know, one of the characters is dead and uh, we still don't really know what it's about. So we had to kind of, we, we then had to go back and say, okay, so who are these people? What what are they doing there? I think just from writing dialogue and talking about it and, and swapping ideas back and forth, the the idea came about that they were all on the island for various uh, crimes, uh, things they'd done, not not literal crimes, but crime, the things the Catholic Church would consider yeah. crimes. Actually, in, in Ted's case, kind <laughs> of a crime. Um, but like um, that's that was that really that really worked. One of the things Griffiths Jones told us was that you need a trap in the sitcom, some reason why the characters have to be together. Because if they if they didn't have to be together, why would they hang around with other people who annoyed yeah. them so much? So the Catholic Church gave us this brilliant one because we'd noticed that in all the uh, sex scandals, one of the things the Catholic Church tended to do was move people from per- parish to parish, something that had appalling uh, consequences in the real world because they were moving very dangerous men from parish to parish. But in, um, in, uh, in our show... Uh, you know, it it was a lighter a lighter thing. Ted wasn't a you know predatory uh, uh, sex yeah. sex maniac. He was just he just had some sort of financial irregularities. Uh, Dougal, uh, I remember. I think we said something like those nuns were injured, or I can't remember exactly how it goes. But Dougal caused. No, oh, he harm says they were only nuns. nuns. I think he said, yeah, they were only nuns. Yeah, that's right. And and Frank is Frank Frank uh, Father Jack was our, was us trying to address the stories I guess we'd heard of when the church was really bad like you know I don't know if you know about the Christian brothers who taught my dad and were apparently psychopaths you know so we had something we wanted something that represented the old church uh, that had a lot of control over Ireland and that had. Uh, too much power uh, and had been corrupted as a result. And so we gave all that to Frank, uh, to Father Jack. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I'm not sure if we actually went in uh, and decided that's what the story is or whether, I think it's more likely it happened this way around. We were probably writing out loads of scenes to try and get to know the characters and just for our just for our own amusement. And probably at one point, you know, uh, the the Bishop Brennan said, uh, you know, Dougal, you did this, and and your only nuns just they were only nuns just popped out of Dougal's mouth, the way they the way the lines would often mm. do that. You know, we we almost didn't expect them. You know, we almost I we used to say it was like turning on a, a tape recorder and just and just listening to them. Yeah, you know what I mean. They they just talked. They talked and talked and talked, and everything they said was funny. And sometimes the funniest things would become part of what you might call the show's canon. Canon. Um, and we just kept, you know, it, it gradually built up a, a picture that was consistent and made sense and, you know, is very useful for when you want an audience to return again and again to a show and enjoy it. You know, like we could be mad, but we had to create rules and strictures uh, that, that 
meant that the show just didn't float away uh, on a cloud of whimsy, yeah. you know? So, yeah, it was an interesting, uh, what's the word? Uh, there's a word for it bit by bit by bit when something is bit by bit, uh, gradual, it's not gradual. It's no, it's, uh, it's okay. iterative. It was an iterative process. And, um, yeah, it was just great. It was just going to work every day, laughing our heads off, and and at the end of it, just trying to figure out what we yeah. had. And uh, yeah. and do you have a a particular scene that you found? Because what I love about Father Ted, and I think you've said it, and I even spoke to Bill Oakley, who, in my opinion, was the best writer for The Simpsons, that you took some nearly Simpsons esque gags out, where say the Dougal funeral one, where you're in the moment and then suddenly it just pans to the next scene where it's just complete disaster and soon with the hearse on fire. Yeah. But what I was meaning to say there was there like a particular scene where maybe it builds up and they're stuck in say the living room or somewhere else. Was there like a scene, whether it was you or some of the actors that was just clearly the funniest to create or was there so many that it was hard to keep track I I have a very there's a special place in my heart for flight into terror because we wrote it in two days. It was based on my fear mm. of flying, and and it, and it barely changed from from the from the first draft to the last. And like we were so on our game at that stage that when we got about halfway through the show and reached a point where we didn't really know what to do next, um, <laughs> the idea of the essay competition yeah. to see who gets the last last parachute occurred to us. And that was just one of the nicest moments. Because again, it's, it's almost like, it's like, you, you know, you got to realize you, when, when Father Ted goes out, by the time it goes out, you never want to yeah. see it again because you've seen it thousands of times. So the, the time that where, where we got to experience the story and where we got to laugh was when we were writing it. So when the words, how about an essay competition or whatever it was came out of the characters' mouths? You know, we we just just took the rest of the day off. Mm. You know, it was we were laughing laughing so much, and it just kind of you, you have an idea like that, and then it it creates then a series of mini ideas. Like, what is each essay competition? Which what is each essay going to look like? And so you you know, there's one guy who says, "I think I should get the parachute because yeah. I'm great," and, and that doesn't go down well. And another guy mishears and draws a picture <laughs> of himself naked with a dog, you know. And and it was just it was just glorious, you know. It, 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 it to me that was like the closest thing to just watching a show and enjoying it. We really just sat there and let them talk. Yeah, you know, because they they are like quite literally confined for 95% of that episode in in the airplane. And, like, it's funny because yeah. my go-to from that particular episode is the captain, who probably, I don't think he appears ever again, but, like, some of his dialogue and one-liners, I think when he looks at sticky tape and just goes, brilliant, stuff like that <laughs> is just remarkable yeah he was a funny yeah. actor he liked to he liked to eat yeah. the furniture a bit. <laughs> which i uh, think actually yeah. made his character if he was a bit more subdued it probably yeah. wouldn't have worked but with the the writing process that you've referred back to a bit and i, I always find this fascinating say father ted like most of the the best sitcoms was it was around what 23 to 25 minutes around give or take 
Yeah, Channel 4 is, a tw- is 24 and a half minutes, yeah. I think. Yeah, and how did you find, because you said you had to kind of learn how to write, and as you said, have a beginning, middle, and end, and a lot of Father Ted's best episodes is when there's just that build up to an impending disaster or a resolution to a disaster. But as you wrote that, and especially with Arthur as well, how did that, like, did that evolve as you made the three seasons or was it very much set in stone? Because I said the same thing about the Simpsons where they had their DNA on how to write a good episode. They also were cautiously aware that say, I don't know, John and Mary, they didn't want to include don't include them too much because then the the magnitude of that scene would drop or say someone like Larry Duff. So how, if you could give mm. us an insight into how your writing evolved as the show went on, but then also like how did you treat, say, the sub-characters and the, the sub-stories as it, as it progressed? Yeah. Well, um, the kind of minor characters would come in useful at various points you know, for various things. Like, for instance, Dougal going to visit John and Mary and asking for yeah. handcuffs and say, ah, they're, they're for me and Ted and all that sort of stuff. The useful little moment there. Um, uh, and, and and it's always good in a comedy to provide some sort of uh, third-party perspective who is looking on and not quite seeing the yeah. full picture. So, you know, they, they obviously go away thinking that Ted and Dougal are into sadomasochistic gay sex. Um, <laughs> But like, uh, but yeah, I mean, at the start, the main influence for me was The Simpsons. I was just obsessed with it. It, it was like the golden era, um, probably the episodes that, you know, Oakley wrote. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, the Clown College episode yeah. and things like that. Just gl- glorious, glorious comedy. Um But it, but it was interesting about The Simpsons. It's, 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 Simpsons is one of those shows where, the structure for me is somewhat invisible. Uh, it's so visually arresting and interesting and gag ridden that I actually didn't couldn't really pick apart the structure the way I could in other shows. Um, so what happened was as uh, we were writing Ted, I started to get more and more obsessed with uh, Seinfeld. Yeah, great show and sign sign yeah great show and Seinfeld had a very clear structure, yeah. you know, which was like three unrelated stories that come together at the end in some way. And that's what we started doing. You know, if I kind of, um, I think Arthur was a bit, he said, once said to me, he didn't feel like he was, he didn't feel as con- involved in the third series. Uh, and it was possibly because I was kind of in for trying to enforce yeah. this structure. Um, uh, which I just thought, and 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 the thing about the thing about it is, when you say, okay, we're going to have three stories, they're going to tie together at the very end. Then there's a lot less room for, you know, some of the more discursive comedy that 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 might have been in the first and second series, where people are just sitting around shooting the shit. Uh, third series was very very directional. You know, the stories were all they all had a very um, they all had a, 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 a an aim they were trying they were trying to hit or sorry a target they were trying yeah. to hit, um, and uh, yeah that was just you know so, so I think what happened really was was we went from loving loving the Simpsons and wanting to emulate the Simpsons and doing that however we could uh, to by the third series loving Seinfeld and trying to emulate the 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 
the really quite lovely uh, uh, structure of, of that show. Um, so, yeah, that's how it went. It's, it was just trying to copy one thing, getting it slightly wrong, and then trying to copy another thing, getting it slightly wrong. Yeah. You know, that's what Elvis Costello said about music. He said, pop music is the history, the history of pop music is people trying to copy other people and getting it slightly mm. wrong. And, and uh, yeah, that's what we were yeah, doing. True. Yeah. And with Father Ted, just one of the last things I want to ask about it is like it's, it's aged remarkably well. And I think even, oh, even with it, it's all subjective, as you know, but that's just my take mm. on it. But I feel like with comedy, especially maybe the more modern side, comedy is a bit more treacherous now. But the fact that like still today, young people, old people, middle-aged people of all backgrounds still adore it and still quote it on a regular basis, in my opinion, shows that it, yeah. it has aged and it, it is still beloved. But do you ever look back and can you attribute that to anything or is it just simply because this is even non-Irish people as well who love it. Like, mm. can you put that down mm. to anything? That's a good question because, because I would actually, I was surprised when you said it's age. Well, because, because, you know, I think I often think of lines like Nelson Mandela and his mad wife, which must play to modern audiences. And they think, what are you mm. talking about? You know, um, and we did. We did have a lot of references to pop culture and so on, but I guess, I guess, if you take a if you take a, a, a pop culture reference like Speed Three, yeah. um, when we turned it into the milk float and all that sort of thing, then it becomes its own thing, and you can enjoy it for its own sake. You don't even need necessarily need to know that it's a parody of the Speed films for it to work. So. I think maybe that was it. We, we, we always had an eye to, we wanted to make sure that you didn't just enjoy it because you were going, oh, I get that reference, I get that reference. We wanted, wanted the stories to work and make sense in their own right, you know? In fact, there was one episode where I, me and Arthur had a big debate about this, uh, the Christmas episode where the character comes down um, like in Mission yeah. Impossible. Uh, and I, I didn't want to use the music because I thought it would tie it too much to that era. Uh, and Arthur did, uh, and I think I won. And I'm, I'm still actually not sure whether it was the right decision. I may, have, I may have needed to lose that one. But the fact that we didn't have it, the fact that we didn't have it, means that it's not a reference. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just a very weird thing that happens. A priest suddenly yeah. descends from it's the not ceiling. on the nose. You know. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so maybe it's little decisions like that that add up and mean that people can enjoy it without necessarily needing to know what the references are. Yeah, you know what I mean. And I actually think that's a very important point. And even as you said, like taking the the structures from maybe a bit of The Simpsons, bit of Seinfeld, and as you said, they're not keeping it organic. I think that's because like Father Ted has its characters, its quotes, its you know, sad moments, hilarious moments, and that's what makes it repetable, repetable, I can't speak, repetable viewing. Yeah, yeah repeatable, repeatable, excuse repeatable. me, thank you. So yeah, don't worry. that I think the organic nature to it where you feel like, oh, this isn't a rip-off of this show or that show, which we've seen so many times in comedy, but I think that's probably the nature of it, and that's why it works still. And Yeah, and also, yeah, yeah. if I can add to it, I think there's an, there's another thing, which is that we didn't even we didn't mean to do this, but we sort of accidentally 
uh, created a family. Yeah. You know, Ted being the dad, Mrs. Old Mum, Granddad, Father Jack, and the child as Dougal. <laughs> and uh, when you when you when when audiences see themselves reflected, or especially families, when families see themselves reflected, that's a huge thing. That means that it becomes a family event to watch yeah. it. You know, so uh, yeah, that was another thing that that we did. Again, not deliberately at all, but it turned out yeah. right. And I can I can even admittedly say and i don't know for better or worse but my dad occasionally calls me dougal or back when back when i'm in the family house for christmas i'll be like i'll say goodnight well, ted and he'll I, say goodnight dougal well i can beat that arnold once said that he, he based dougal on me <laughs> so i think that's much yeah, worse no you trumped me there to be fair but just moving on to not so much specifically the IT crowd, but what you said about that, and I don't want to keep reference it, but it is a useful one. Bill Oakley, when he worked with, say, Futuram and some of the other projects, he always he said that we nearly we took The Simpsons into those shows, and as a result, we felt like we were trying too hard. And a lot of you you have kind of referenced to your time at TED. It was so natural. It didn't really feel like work. You didn't even anticipate it to be as big as it was. But when a writer, in your case, says or looks back on something and says, oh, we probably tried too hard or we wrote too hard on that. Like creative-wise, like or creativity-wise, what does that actually mean or what does that look like? Well, uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure I, I know exactly why. W- 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 what Are you talking about something I, I said about, about the idea? Yes, I, in one of your interviews, you didn't necessarily say you didn't like it or anything far from it, but you just said there were times maybe in the writing where you struggled to come up with ideas and you felt like you were working too hard. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that I think there were two reasons for that. The first is that it wasn't as... Uh, it wasn't as as clear a premise as the TED premise. The TED premise was so simple and clear. Three worst priests in the world, in the worst parish in the world. It's, it's brilliant. You get it in, yeah. immediately. Whereas, whereas IT crowd was a little bit a little bit harder to explain. Um, it was a little bit. Uh, it wasn't as clean an idea as Father Ted. Um, and also, I was writing it on my own, so I didn't have anyone to bounce it off. I was kind of uh, using my experience from previous shows, but but in completely new territory. Uh, so it was, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was just it was just a little tougher for that reason. But uh, you know, I was very, and also you kind of sometimes you want someone to fight against you. You want someone to say, no, don't do that. You know, because 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 what you do when when that happens. And you really think that they're wrong, and you really want you 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 stress test yeah. the idea, you you really kind of um, put it through a number of of tests that to see if it stands up, and it's a useful thing. So that didn't really happen on on the IT crowd because it, you know everybody was like yes sir, mm. you know, um, uh, except for Chris O'Dowd, of course, who 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 was uh, who 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 had the hardest job in the show because. I hadn't really created a character for him. I had, I kept saying to him, it's me. You're just playing me. You know? um, and he was like, well, I don't know. You, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is fair enough. Uh, and, you know, he just wanted to create a character himself um, or, or, you know, like basically an actor 
it's like the script in the end is a very bare bones thing you know you might even say you only give an actor 30 percent of what it, eventually he he does so so chris had to provide the other 70 percent all the pauses between lines all the reactions to lines all that sort of stuff and he needed to know who the character was so me saying it's me it's me it was not very mm. useful to him um he gave gave me he gave the character a few of my qualities. He, he gave him a slouch, which which I've had since I was a teenager. Um, uh, I think he copied some some parts of my speech, the way I speak. Uh, but uh, you know, it was it, it, for me the character was based very much on the kinds of guys I used to see hanging around in record shops, very cynical, <laughs> uh, very superior. Um, you know. Every question is a stupid question. Um, and that came about because I, I also heard from uh, a few people who I knew who worked in tech that uh, a lot of these guys whose job it is to go up and tell people to turn it off and on again are extremely intelligent guys. And so that kind of haughty intelligence um, worked very well as a comic idea because he's the the people who work in the office consider them to be at the bottom of the totem pole whereas they think that they're smarter than everyone else so yeah we just kind of we found our way there eventually we found our way through talking about the character and through doing each episode but it would have been an easier job for him and perhaps as well for me if i had defined that character a little bit better from the start like yeah, I think it was too. I could not figure out what to call, yeah. you know, which is which is a really bad thing for a character. And it was only in the second, third series that I settled on his second name being <laughs> Trenman, because because it sounded a bit like my name and and was equally annoying. Yeah. So uh, you know, so that so yeah, but but having said that, you know, again, it was like a a chunky, you know, slapped together idea with character, you know, where we were all finding our way and it, it ended up working, you know? So I was very pleased with it in the end. There's some episodes that I would put up there amongst, you know, my favorite things that I've written. Yeah. You know? Now there are some, all it takes if anyone hasn't seen it, just type in the IT crowd best moments and there'll probably be a lot of <laughs> Chris O'Dowd's, uh, what would you call it? His, his phone voicemail popping up, but there were some, some good ones along the way. But, yeah, yeah. Like, and I think that, like, in terms of structure, I think the the theater uh, gay episode is is probably the best thing ever. Yeah, I haven't um, seen that in years, but I know. do remember it. Yeah, it's, yeah. It is now. It's a special show, and like a lot of the maybe British TV shows, if you just dig a bit deeper f- compared to the the offices and whatnot of the world, there's some absolute gems. And yeah, like with. With regards to all that, that's obviously your the creative side of your work. And to be honest, I, I could go on for the next six hours talking about all the, the comedy sides of things and what was your favorite father, Jack quote, et cetera, et cetera. But with your most recent book, what's well, your book that's just been published? I One of the questions I, I want to ask was like at this time period of your life, I should say, what was it? 
like a, a reaction to COVID? Was a reaction to the change in landscapes in your life that made you want to pick up the pencil? Or was this something a decade ago you were like, you know what, in a few years, I'd like to sit down and tell my side of the story. Like what made you want to you know, write a book and put pen to paper? Oh, well, you know, it was, it was literally explaining my position yeah. because my position on the uh, trans issue, which is what I got involved in, uh, was being misrepresented so to such an extent that even people who were close to me uh, were calling me names and uh, believing the worst rumors that were floating around online. So I kind of figured that the only way I could actually address it was by writing a book about it. You know, um, I also kind of thought that once the book came out, there would be uh, also interviews uh, such as this one, where, again, I could explain yeah. myself and explain my positions. So, you know, if you do that enough, maybe I, I thought maybe I'd be able to counteract the kind of black propaganda that's been spread around, around about me, including my Wikipedia page. You know, so, uh, yeah, that was it, really. And also I needed to make some money because I, I had no I suddenly had no uh, income, you yeah. know, um, beyond my website where I post about, you know, journalism about this stuff. Um, so, yeah, that was it, really. L literally just survival. So, yeah. you know, and and like with the book, it's like well over, I'd say about 100, 130, 140 pages is dedicated to the the topic around around trans people and, and the views you have on that topic. And me watching from afar, the transgender kind of ideology is it's it's every day on the news. There's different takes on it. And like even yourself, it's it's kind of well established now that like the father ted musical was scrapped due to your your views mm -hmm. on it and mm -hmm. like this is just me reading like comments like a lot of women are in favor of your support and likewise there's a lot of people against your support but knowing that in the the society we now exist in where it's you can see it's a top end politics in the states you're either trump or biden and if you're biden and someone supports trump they're an idiot and vice versa so it's a very contrast mm. in society and a very aggressive one we live in unfortunately when you know you're either right or wrong there's no middle ground or discussion but my question on the back of that is with say some of the the negative effects it's had and here you are today still holding those views which i respect entirely do you ever question like why did you feel the need to like speak out on the matter even if it would come at such a cost or do you feel all my points all my views outweigh all the you know misgivings and setbacks i may have along the way well yeah i mean look in the end the the most important aspect of this is the fact that children are being hurt you know I don't, I don't, I genuinely do not understand why, why everyone isn't joining this fight. You know, we have young kids who are being told if they display any kind of gender non-conforming traits, as one gay friend of mine put it, if they walk down the wrong aisle in a toy shop, you know, they are being misdiagnosed as trans and put on a pathway that could very well lead to endless hospital visits, you know, destroyed sexual function, um, 
and and certainly a shortened life you know the effect of cross-sex hormones like testosterone on women is is appalling you know they women if you start young enough you will go into the menopause 20 years too late too early excuse me 20 years too early so you have these young girls who've been lied to and told that if they take these drugs they'll turn into boys and in fact what they're doing is turning into old women you know the same the same with the same medical problems that old women get like menopause isn't it is no joke mm-hmm. you know it 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 it, it kind of uh, increases the chances of things like dementia you know uh also testosterone the effect on uh women's bodies uh, is is really quite extreme you know it, it it increases the risk of heart failure heart attacks suddenly become something that could affect a girl in her 20s you know uh, i was seeing lots of uh, accounts of young women who had had to have hysterectomies in their 20s because another thing that cross-sex hormones do is they fuse the ovaries uh to uh another part of uh, uh i'm not sure what, sorry what part of the body is i'd have to look this up but they fuse the ovaries to um uh to another part of the body and that creates uh decay that means that the 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 ovaries start to decay and that means that these young women have to get hysterectomies so you know i was seeing i was seeing young women in despair because they'd suddenly realized that they destroyed any chance they had of having children, that they'd shortened their lives. Um, and young men, you know, there was an interview just the other day with a trans identified man, 22 years old. And he was told by doctors that he would literally turn into the opposite sex if he had, if he, if he removed his penis. Um, and now he's got a wound down there where he should have a penis. He's a gay man, young gay man, 22 years old. He should be out partying, having a normal life. And his sexual life is over, you know? I, I just don't know how anyone could ignore it. I don't, know how, I don't know how people can ignore Jazz Jennings, who never had a chance, mm. you know, and, and who's been filmed going through all this and is now morbidly obese and refusing to, uh, uh, what's the word, um, dilate his, his, the wound that the doctors gave him, you know. The, the, this is not a good movement. This is, this is an extremely dangerous, disastrous movement for people who get caught up in it. And uh, I don't understand how, for instance, my colleagues on the Father Ted musical can ignore all this, mm. uh, you know, especially those who, of them who have uh, daughters. I just don't see how they can ignore it. Like, you know, I don't see how they can ignore the, fair, the unfairness of, 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 you know, men suddenly taking women's places on podiums in, in, in their sports. Yeah. I don't see how they, uh, how can you ignore it? It's so clearly wrong. It's so clearly unfair. And, and these young women who would have had sports careers are now leaving their sports because they're so demoralized. One woman uh, said, um, I think she was a, she was a, a student and she said, what is the point of training, breaking your back training? If, if a trans identified man can come in and just run laps around us, you know? And I found, I, I just, I just don't see how anyone can participate in such a grave insult to women. I find it shocking that, you know, 
we're just shrugging at the fact that Eddie Izzard is is regularly going into women's toilets. It's like get out, get mm-hmm. out. Yeah, you know, and it, and it's like it's not uh, you know, and and I do draw a distinction. I don't believe there's a phrase that people use, true trans, which is much looked down upon because it's like the argument is that you know. Uh, transsexuals are different to the cross-dressing men. I do think that's true that they are different. I still don't think they're they're women. But I do think that dysphoria is a pretty debilitating problem if you're unlucky enough mm. to get it. And and there, it has to be addressed properly. But I don't think you address dysphoria by saying to a man who's convinced he's a woman, yes, you literally are a woman and you can have access to all women's spaces and you can have access to all women's sports. I just think that's helping no one, you know, certainly not women, but it's not even helping the people it's purported to help. And I've just been fighting the battle to try and get people to realize that the further down this road we go, the more victims there's going to be and the more harm it's going to cause. Yeah. You know, like, you know. No, I get that. And I find a good litmus test of, of anything in modern society is social media. And again, that's for better or worse. But like on a lot of your videos or even tweets or even statements about you or even articles written about you, like you'd nearly expect with the conditions you faced, as I said, like the cancellation uh, you faced, you'd expect like there is a good, like there is a bit of hate. I'm not going to be naive or ignore that. But like the majority of say YouTube videos about you, you have got hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of women standing up for you, saying you're right to fight their corner and speaking very positively about you. So is there is there a part of you that sometimes feels that like maybe maybe this isn't my fight to do? Maybe if, if women can lead this, I can g- gather in around them? Or is it like stuff like that where you hear women saying, keep doing what you're doing, kind of it just nearly boost you and shows that you know what you're doing is it's got a purpose and got a value well i think i know what you're asking but let me put it this way if if my biggest problem in the last few years is other people not doing their jobs the you know journalists not covering it properly uh broadcasters not interviewing people about it like you know i i regularly get people on like my four-starter and and you know various uh helen joyce various big uh names in this fight uh i get them on my channel and i speak to them and and uh figure out what they have to say and lots of smaller names as well uh but but important people you know people who for instance have been you know uh bullied and and their their jobs threatened because of their beliefs i shouldn't have to do any of this i'm a i was a comedy writer but no one else was doing it, you know. It just and I and no one else with my this like a, I had about nine hundred thousand people on Twitter, and then that when I started talking about this, it went down by three hundred thousand people, something like that. Stop following me. Um, but I still had a fairly significant uh, number of people following me on Twitter, and I felt that it was you know I just felt it was immoral not to do it. If no one else is doing it, you have to do it, you know. There's a there's a there's a story, story a novel that was very influential on me when I was thinking about abortion 
uh, as an issue when I was 16 around called the Cider House Rules. And the main character is, is, is a guy who does not agree with abortion, uh, but he is a surgeon and he feels that while abortion is illegal, he has a moral duty to perform them because these women, they used to throw themselves downstairs. They used to drink poison, anything to get rid of mm. the baby. So his his thing was, well, if if these doctors won't let these women do it safely, then I have to do it. It's a brilliant novel, really, really um, brilliantly uh, argued and uh, nuanced and uh, very ambiguous and, and fascinating uh, asp- uh, dilemma for that main character to be in. Um, I, I'm in a similar kind of thing. I would much rather be writing comedy. I'd much rather be talking about Silly things, yeah. you know, the kind of silly things that always amuse me. But unfortunately, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, the BBC won't talk about it. Uh, in fact, you know, recently Doctor Who has started pushing the ideology onto its young audience. I think this is a, it, stuff like that is a disaster. I don't want any more of these kids to be told this corrosive lie that if they take cross-sex hormones, they will turn into the opposite sex. It's evil to tell kids this. And so I have to fight it until it becomes more mainstream. And when it becomes mainstream, believe me, if I can, you know, get back into comedy and and make a living through that, I will be happy to do so. But at the moment, unfortunately, this this is kind of my life. You know, it has to be. Because A, it's my only form of income. And B, no one else is doing it. Yeah, no well said. And the last question I kind of want to ask is, it's a bit of a a sidestep from it, but as you said, if all going well, you can just revert back to comedy maybe a few years or God knows how long. We hindsight's the the best opinion of them all, but we'll we'll see how this journey goes. But you said, as you said, you'd like to be talking about silly things, writing comedy, stuff like that. But comedy itself... It it's seen well when I grew up I always viewed it as a open and creative place, a lot like music, a lot like art, whatever you'd want to compare it to. But in modern society, like in the cinema, for instance, I, I, I am hard pressed. I've seen one comedy in the last year, like a true comedy. Yeah. And it's even the same where not a week goes by that I don't see a comedian, whether it's the US, UK or wherever it may be been attacked due to a comment they said at a live show so the state comedy is in now do you feel it's dead do you feel it's dying a slow death do you feel it's in a great place because like the way i look at it, i feel comedy is in a it's in a very turbulent place and a very uncomfortable place especially by the the creators of it for all the wrong reasons yeah it's in a terrible place it's in a terrible place however there is one good aspect to it it is genuinely exciting when you see someone like dave Chappelle, yeah. or you see someone like uh what's his, what's that guy shane gillis um when you see a show like uh mr mr in between in australia uh that 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 is a very savage tarantino-esque type crime show um when you do see these things Boy, it's exciting! It's so it's so exciting because it's like, as you say, it's just a time of, of stultifying conformity, um, self policing, uh, fear of the mob. You know, like 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 terror of what the mob will think of your comedy, or 
you know, it was a brilliant quote. Someone said, comedian said, the, the joke that will destroy my life is already out there. Yeah, no, absolutely you know? true. Yeah. And I, and basically, we, we just have to get used to the fact that we've all left a trail of, uh, of comments or whatever it happens to be, jokes, in-jokes, online for the last decade or two decades. We've, we've, we've basically been living online. We've been living in public. And we have to we have to do something about the people who, for political reasons, use that history to destroy people's lives. You know, I, 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 we really have to start destroying the lives of the destroyers. We have to turn the tables on these people, you know, um, because they are bullies with not a creative bone in their body. Most of the comedians who come after me. People like, you know, there's there's a guy in Dublin, Aidan Comerford, and there's others in, in the UK. They're terrible comedians, mm. <laughs> you know, and they thrive only in this environment because they're doing the kind of comedy that, you know, just no one can find offensive because it doesn't take any risks. Uh, it doesn't experiment with saying the unsayable. It's just the kind of, I call it junglers comedy. There used to be these clubs around London called junglers. And you would always, it was always a place where you'd see stag nights and hen nights. And the comedy for me was always in a very, it was always very mm. mid, you know. Um, and they're all junglers comedians, you know. They, 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 they easily get on shows like, you know, live at the Apollo and stuff yeah. like this. But there's nothing to them. Um I don't know, but but the great thing about that, the potentially great thing about that is it could lead to a boom in, you know, the kind of comedy that people want to see that presses people's buttons, that challenges them, uh, that, that, that wanders into taboo areas simply because that's, you know, when, when people put their guard up, if you make them laugh, it's an even greater victory, you know? So I, I, I think that, I think that, Yes, it's bad. It's especially bad for scripted comedy, as you say. It's terrible for scripted comedy at the moment. But again, I think when, you know, like for instance, I'm waiting for the first good podcast sitcom because that's a place where you could get something out very quickly, uh, relatively easily, and you could break all the rules you want. Yeah. That's, you know, but, but for some reason, it's just not occurring to people to write it. Perhaps because the fear of the mob is so great. But again, it's another reason why I feel I have to be in this fight. I want to destroy the power of the mob. You know, I really want to fucking stop them being able to destroy people's lives. Um, and once we do that, the field will be clear for writing comedy that everybody, you know, enjoys again. You know, yeah. you, you can't get comedy by consensus. Yeah. You know, and that's what they're trying yeah. to do. I think when you've the likes of Frankie Boyle or well not so much him but like Ricky Gervais having to explain the context before they do the joke that comes across as harsh we're in a we're in a bad place once you start having to explain in your own jokes we're we're doomed yeah. as a creative and comedic force but the yeah the, how I normally end these Graham is I just do a few quick fire questions and then I can let you go sure. enjoy your tea or whatever you'd call your dinner slash supper or whatever Irish you. term you want to okay. throw but yeah I'll fire away and anything that the first thing okay. that comes to your mind feel free to say it so first question oh. is your favorite film of all time 
first thing that comes to my mind, favorite film of all time. Well, it's the, oh, that's a difficult one. I'll say, certainly say in the top three, and I'll pick a comedy one, is uh, The Heartbreak Kid with Charles Grodin, Neil Simon comedy. Charles Grodin plays um, a guy who marries a woman, goes on honeymoon with her, then falls in love with Sybil <laughs> Shepherd, and breaks up with his wife on honeymoon. It's one of the funniest films. It's such a great dilemma. It's such a great predicament for a character mm. to be in that it just kind of it, it, the the rest of the scenes fall like dominoes afterwards. Yeah, beautiful piece of comedy writing. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I I try and track that down. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it, so I absolutely will give it a watch in the next week. So, next mm. one is what is the best advice an actor or actress you've worked with has given you? Well, I remember there was a scene where. Chris O'Dowd was stuck under a table and I needed to show that he couldn't get out. And I was shooting the shit out of this scene. I was like, like putting cameras everywhere and I could not figure out how to say in visual terms that he couldn't get out. And I went up to Chris and I finally told him this problem. And he said, Oh, I'll just look this and I'll go like that. And I'll go, Ooh, and then I'll look that way and do the same thing. And that was it. And you so so I I think that like one would what I what what would have made that day much easier would have been if I'd gone to Chris first and said I don't know how to shoot shoot this bit and and spoke to it because that because in the end it really is about collaboration and um, uh, yeah that would have made made that day a lot easier and and probably the scene a lot funnier because I I I would have been able to stop worrying about very practical geographical things and and actually just tell the story yeah. you know. Fair point. Yeah. Trust your actors. And speaking of actors, this next one's quite self-indulgent for me, but it's, it's probably my favorite gag from your show, Father Ted. So the question I have is, if you can remember or recall, is who came up with the response for Jack to say arse to Mrs. Doyle when she greets him by saying father while passing him during the episode of kicking Bishop Brennan up the arse? If you can remember that scene. I, uh, Oh my God! What like one scene where one bit where he says it's, arse to it's, a question? It's, it's when he's locked Bishop Brennan's uh, sidekick, the sarcastic priest, in his room, right. and Father Jack walks by Mrs. Doyle, and she goes, "Father," and he just goes, "Arse." Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. That was just like you know. <laughs> That was just, uh, you know, walking, walking. How how can we show Jack walking away from having done what he was just doing? <laughs> and so Miss Doyle turns up just to have that little contact with him. Oh yeah, yeah that's brilliant. But, Honestly, every yeah. time I know it's coming, and I just burst out laughing. <laughs> it's brilliant. Good, I'm delighted. <laughs> delighted. So next one is what is the best Simpsons gag of all time? Like a scene or a skit or a one liner. The one I've been loving lately is uh, the uh, makeup shotgun uh, that Homer makes, which is like when you only have four-fifths of a second to get ready. And he just says it's a makeup shotgun, turns the gun, and shoots Marge point-blank in the face. (laughs) And then when the camera cuts to her, she's got the makeup all over her face. She looks ridiculous. And she says, I think you have it set to four. extraordinary extraordinary moment you know um so yeah that's one 
Uh, and, you know, nearly every single joke in Clown College. I yeah, think, great episode. You know, yeah, yeah. Work of art. A real work yeah. of art. You know. And second last question is, what is the worst? Cleaning the dishes, hoovering the house, or changing the bed sheets? Hmm. Hoovering the house. That's a pain in the ass. <laughs> I, I still can't find a Hoover that actually sucks stuff up. No, yeah. You so, see yeah. so many ads about Dysons and stuff like that, but most of the people are too lazy to get them. But yeah, I still find them an absolute nightmare to get working and actually do their job. Yeah. So fair point. Yeah. And lastly, Graham, is if I could ask you one question I haven't asked you today, what would it be? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know, man. You've asked me some pretty good questions, you know. It's been nice. It's been nice to talk about the book, uh, to talk about the fact that you know it's about Father Ted and the IT crowd. You know, people think that the last five years of my life is is the only thing the book's about. Mm. You know, whereas it's actually only a small percentage of what's happened to me. Um, so uh, yeah, no, I think you 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 were pretty good on the questions. I wouldn't have any. I don't. Can't think of any anything you haven't okay. heard. Okay. Well, maybe next time you watch that Bishop Brennan episode, think think back long, long and hard as to where that originated from. I'll try. Yeah. I'll try. Yeah. But yeah. no, listen, listen, Graham. That that pretty much wraps it up. So I just want to thank you for firstly speaking so openly about all the good and the bad that the last few decades have thrown your way. And I do want to thank you for creating a, a sitcom that I absolutely enjoy. And my family and friends, like even when I said you were coming on, some of my friends were sending ridiculous gifts that were Father Ted inspired, no doubt. Oh, so uh, I know that a lot of people enjoy uh, listening to this. And for anyone who's interested in your book or even your Twitter page or any of your websites, I'll, I'll attach all those links below. So feel free to, to check Thank out you. Graham and listen I just wish you all the best in the, the next few years I'm excited to hopefully see you back writing comedy soon and yeah as you were saying uh, winning winning the war against the, the mob let's see what happens yeah brilliant lovely to talk no to you worries, Richie Graham.